On Friday, June 24th, the United States changed. It is a tectonic shift on abortion rights. The U.S. Supreme Court today remade the legal landscape. The Supreme Court has now overturned Roe v. Wade, overturned Roe v. Wade. That is the landmark court ruling from 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide. Abortion is no longer the law of the land. Now it will be up to individual states and bans are already going into force. For some people, it was an immense victory. This is from celebrations outside the Supreme Court. The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion! For many others, it was a seismic shock of fear. If a right is something that is fundamental and cannot be taken away, what, what do we have left? And for Dr. Richard Manning, an obstetrician gynecologist who provides abortions in the state of Tennessee, it was a workday unlike any other in a long career. I just said, we just cannot see you anymore because the uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Across the U.S. political divide, one thing is clear. The fight over abortion doesn't end with a court decision. Today we're asking, what's next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. For almost 50 years, Roe v. Wade has been a synonym for the right to abortion under the law, under the constitutional right to privacy. It's a Supreme Court case, and for decades it was the only federal guarantee to abortion in the U.S. Now there's another famous court decision that says the Constitution does not confer the right to an abortion. And that one is called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. That's when I'll be working in this weekend. That's Dr. Manning again. Jackson Women's Health, where he provides services, is the only abortion provider in the state of Mississippi. And now, after the Supreme Court ruling, Mississippi will ban abortion, with limited exceptions. It's set to go into effect on July 7th. You know, I'll probably be the last doctor working there. I worked there this weekend, I think Friday, Saturday, and maybe Sunday. So I have a busy weekend. Dr. Manning has been providing abortions for a long time. I've provided abortion services to uh, patients throughout the South since 1975. He says he's performed well over 100,000 in his career. And on Friday... He was in the neighboring state of Tennessee, which will have its own ban coming into effect soon. He was sitting with a patient doing a consultation when the news came down. I was seeing patients for their first visit. In Tennessee, you have to have two visits. I have to personally do the ultrasound, and then I have a sheet that the state tells me that I have to read to each patient. And I'd already seen, I guess, two or three patients when the uh, clinic director says, Dr. Manning, we have to stop. Our attorneys have just told us to go ahead and stop seeing first visit patients because they thought we would not be able to provide abortions at their second visit. 
Dr. Manning's patient heard this too. They heard what the uh, clinic director said. I mean, at least the patient in the room did. And we just could not believe it. You know, we, we just, it just hit us like a brick wall. They just could not believe that they could not have an abortion in Tennessee. For abortion rights supporters, that shock was felt across the U.S. Even though the decision was leaked to the media in May, it seemed hard for many to accept it was real. Jessica Williams is a lawyer in Washington, D.C. It's really shocking to me in some ways that I got so emotional about the decision because we knew it was coming six weeks ago. And we protested and it didn't make a difference. And everyone knows that public opinion is in favor of abortion access. And it didn't make a difference. On the other side of the country, the news hit early in the morning. My name is Jolene Levid. I was born and raised in Los Angeles to an immigrant Filipino family. I am a social worker, a union organizer, and a mother of a six-year-old son. And Jolene had a mix of emotions. I thought about the young girls in my family who may not have the same type of access to reproductive health care that I do. So my initial reaction was fear. Of course, that was coupled with anger. And then we just jumped right into planning and action. Jolene works with the organization Affirm, which launched actions in multiple states. As for her personally, she said she's actually become even more militant about abortion rights. I have had two abortions in my life. The first being when I was in my early 20s, right out of college. Uh, I got pregnant with my now husband but we were not ready to become parents yet. My second abortion happened in 2014. I actually was six months pregnant. I was pregnant with a boy we were going to name Macario. We were so excited and I loved him already. But at six months pregnant, I found out that my baby was dying and I found out that uh, he would not survive birth and that if I choose to carry my pregnancy to term, I would also risk my own life. It's very difficult for me to imagine a post-Roe world without just simply looking back at U.S. history and how many women have died because they had no access to legal abortion. In this post-Roe world, abortion access is up to each state. And the number of states banning abortion could go as high as 26. But for those against abortion rights, all this is an opportunity for change. Overturning Roe was long past due. That's Kristen Day, executive director of Democrats for Life of America. I got involved with the pro-life movement when I was working on Capitol Hill and I was working for a pro-life Democrat. Since that time, I've had so many conversations with women and men who were affected by abortion. It is something that really weighs heavily 
on uh, women and men who who feel like they didn't have the support to carry the child to term and they would have preferred to have their baby but felt that abortion was their only choice. So for Kristen and many other Americans, Friday was a victory. For 50 years now, we've been fighting over the Supreme Court decision. Now that it will go back to the states, it is an opportunity for us to better support pregnant women, um, address the high abortion rate in some states, and really think about human life and uh, how we protect it. What's important to Kristen, she says, is making sure that women have every resource available to become parents. Pushing this decision back to the states gives this, you know, our 50 states to each have an opportunity to show that their state treats pregnant women and women in crisis pregnancy better than other states. Some states have expanded support for alternatives to abortion. Kristen also mentioned the need for policies like paid family leave, prenatal care, and accessible childcare. None of these are federally covered by the United States. And it's poor women, including women from racial minorities, who are likely to struggle with the lack of support and the lack of access. Al Jazeera field producer Anar Virji heard that from protesters when she was outside the Supreme Court on Friday in Washington, D.C. I've been at the Supreme Court since about an hour after this decision came down to overturn Roe versus Wade. I've spoken to people who are really concerned about the impact that this is going to have on minorities. We spoke to one Black woman who said that we're going to see people like her die because they can't access the medical care that they need. She said that Black women have the highest maternal mortality rate in the United States, and she's really concerned that this is going to disproportionately affect minorities and the poor. Dr. Manning, the abortion provider, mentioned that too. He said now it will be even harder for many of them to get where they need to go. A lot of these uh, patients then they are living really below the poverty level. And a lot of them don't have cars, they don't have transportation. The new laws are really not going to affect people. If you've got a good job, you, you can go to other states. But certainly the racial minorities in America, the poor patients, uh, are really going to have a trouble. At the protest in D.C., Anar also mentioned one group of protesters who stood out to her. Librarians in town for a conference. Deb Sika was one of them, and she was there too. Hello, my name is Deb Sika, and I'm a second-generation Sicilian immigrant, uh, lesbian, librarian, born in New York. I was in line for coffee and caught a glimpse of CNN and heard the news about the overturn of Roe, and everything in my conscious shifted from what I was doing. I walked outside of the conference center, hailed a cab, and went to the Supreme Court. And Deb thought about the legitimacy of the decision and of the justices who made it. I just kept thinking there's an accused um, sexual harasser on that court. There's an accused rapist on that court. And yet here they are deciding our fate in all of this, our medical choices. 
The two justices in question have always denied those accusations. But it's just one factor bringing down confidence in the court in a list of issues, ranging from the appointment process to apparent conflicts of interest in the January 6th insurrection. A Gallup poll has already shown around 75% of Americans lack confidence in the Supreme Court. And now, there's another issue. Supreme Court nominees are asked during their confirmation hearings at the U.S. Senate what they think of Roe v. Wade, especially if they think that case is precedent. That's a decision that's considered an authority when deciding similar future cases. Precedents aren't usually overturned. These are the three recently appointed justices on Roe v. Wade. Here's Brett Kavanaugh. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Neil Gorsuch. A good judge will consider it as precedent, worthy as treatment of precedent, like any other. And Amy Coney Barrett. Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. And speaking of precedent, abortion wasn't the only thing mentioned in Friday's decision. In one of the opinions, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that the court should also reconsider the decision allowing same-sex marriages. The federal government has no law guaranteeing same-sex marriage. Just like abortion, it lies with the Supreme Court. And that could affect marriages like Deb's. We've been together 23 blissful years and have finally um, gotten equal rights, the the thousand plus rights that come with marriage as a contract and the protections that come with marriage. In the post-real world, I see that leaving. And I'll tell you right now, there's going to be one hell of a fight. And there's one hell of a fight with Roe. One hell of a fight. That's something everyone we spoke to recognizes. For Jessica, the lawyer in D.C., She's reminding herself it's also a battle against feelings of hopelessness. As a mixed Black woman lawyer who read the decision, read the dissent only, while at work, I really am asking what my role is and how I can be most useful to the communities that mean the most to me. And that means communities of color, communities of Black people, and women. Um, And I keep on drawing a blank. I can't get too far down this despair path. Um, I know that that's like the point is to just make me feel so sad and so distraught that I become incapable of moving forward. For Jolene, the labor organizer, fighting back is a question of strategy. She's been to protests, and she'll go to more. But she says that it's time to think about more than just mobilization. We will not win against powerful, wealthy targets individually. We have to do this collectively. And even for Kristen, from Democrats for Life of America, this is just a victory in the battle, not the war. This is a huge moment. Uh, but the fight, fight is not over, and it won't end with the Supreme Court's decision. It's it's only just beginning. Deb, the librarian, also sees it as a new chapter. But 
a return to her past activism with abortion clinics, too. Back in the 90s, I used to do clinic defense in Buffalo, New York. We would surround women, um, lock arms, and get them safely to their medical care. That was a time where doctors were followed and their children were followed to school. Lives were at stake. Um, Lives that had been born were at stake. And there was a very different kind of um, fear I will go back to the years of clinic defense. I will go back um, and stand outside in snow, sleet, rain, um, and and protect women who are crossing state borders to get access to medical care. And so this is a long range fight and we are in it. And I will put my money where my mouth is and I hope others do the same. And for Dr. Manning, the abortion provider, as he points out, He's 80 years old, so he's taking the long view. I just remember how, what a disaster it was before Roe versus Wade. I knew a lot of, several of my good friends in high school, like the the main athlete, the president of the class, the most handsome guy. Well, back then, if you got somebody pregnant, you got married. You know, there was no, no abortion, there was no other real alternative. And those memories have kept him going forward over the years including when he passes groups of protesters outside the clinics where he works. They're always screaming at me that I'm going to hell and I'm murdering babies and I'm an old man and going to die soon, so I better repent. But after all this time, he just drives right in. The protesters are within about a foot of me each time I pull in, so I just always wonder, am I going to be shot today? This is going to be my last day on this earth. Uh, But so far, I haven't gotten shot yet. I mean, I just remember, you know, uh, a coward dies many deaths, but a brave man only dies once. People ask me, when am I going to retire? I said, no, exactly when I'm going to retire, about three days before I'm buried. As long as I can physically work and provide services to patients, I will. You know, I have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Auliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Special thanks to Amina Wahid and Emily Drabinsky for their help on this story. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. This episode was mixed by Cheryl Ottenritter. Our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>